to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1104 for the week of Monday, February 11th, 2019. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and we have a full house back tonight. So joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. We got the band back together. I'm so darn happy about that. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. We also have Kat Robinson back with us. Welcome back, Kat. It's always a pleasure to be here. Here's a name that hasn't been with us for a little while. We're very glad to have her back as well. Please welcome back Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's good to be home. We're glad to have you. And also a voice we haven't gotten to hear from in a while, but we love hearing from him, is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hey, well, the price of admission is right, so I'm here. <laughs> That's the thing. We plan on keeping that price at free. So. <laughs> Can't beat it. All right, so we, uh, we've got a lot to get to. Obviously, there's a lot that's been going on. In case you haven't missed it, we've had a few episodes actually get posted uh, related to NASA's Week of Remembrance and honoring some of those crews. So if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to those, we definitely suggest you go back and check those out at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. But in the meantime, there is so much other space news that's been going on, so let's get to that. And we'll begin with our launch roundup. Now, in terms of launches so far since we've been... Uh, dealing with our specials, there has not been a lot of U.S. launches. The only one of major importance out of the U.S. was the Delta IV Heavy that launched back on January 19th after many delays carrying the NROL-71 satellite, that launching out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and that mission thankfully a success after over a month of delays. Yes, yeah, sorry, that was, uh, but it was worth the wait. I'll tell you, if anybody had had, had a chance to go ahead and see that launch, um, I hope, and I hope you did out there in California. Uh, from a photography standpoint, there was a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, images coming out of there, and it was a shockingly, surprisingly clear day out at Vandenberg. In fact, uh, a lot of folks say, "Yeah, you go out to Vandenberg and hear a good launch." Not this time. Uh, the, uh, the weather was like crystal clear out there, and uh, it gave us a, a very good view of that, that Delta IV Heavy getting off the pad. Again, we can't really go into a lot about the payload because it was a National Reconnaissance Office payload, but uh, you, know, you can speculate uh, until the cows come home, basically, as far as what it was for. True to form, too, um, because it was a uh, National Reconnaissance Office payload. As soon as the, the fairing came off, the, uh, the coverage ended, and uh, you know, that, was, that was to be expected. But hats off to ULA. They, they, made, uh, they made that day look real easy. And that's just more proof of, the, of why there are rocket delays, and does it drive us all crazy? Yes. Does it mess up all of our travel plans? Absolutely. And you can never <laughs> request days off from the day job for, because you never know if it's going to go but that's the importance of waiting you know they had a bunch of different issues with hydrogen valves and Mm -hmm. things and you take your time and you get things right so that way when it launches it launches successfully like this and uh the delta 4 heavy always puts on a heck of a show and if you want to hear what a delta 4 sounds like make sure you check out our episode last season on our special from the parker solar probe launch in which we were there when one launched out of cape canaveral in florida and the sound from it is unbelievable real. A few other launches of note actually come from abroad. Arian Space getting their first launch of the year off the ground, that happening February 5th. They've got a busy launch manifest this year, but they began with two satellites for Saudi Arabia, those successfully launching out of French Guiana. I believe they have about 13 launches planned this year, so they will be keeping busy, and we will certainly be keeping track of that. And in addition, another one that's got busy plans this year is India. India actually testing out a new configuration of their rocket, the PSLV, or the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. This one launching in its newest configuration back on January 24th. 
fourth. The new configuration involves two SRBs and is something that may sound very familiar if you're familiar with the Atlas V rocket. They have different variants with different amounts of SRBs or solid rocket boosters to deal with the different weights of the payloads they're trying to launch. So they're taking a page out of ULA's book there with the different variants. This one successfully launching an Earth observing mission for the Indian government. This one isn't so much a launch, but it is a return. The Northrop Grumman Cygnus vehicle, which has been docked at the International Space Station this past Friday, successfully saying farewell its wings flying one last time as it gets ready to burn up in the atmosphere after over a month aboard the space station yeah that's right sawyer uh cygnus still has uh, a lot to do that swan still is uh, going to be sailing up there through february 25th i believe she's supposed to re-enter uh do a destructive re-entry around uh 3 30 in uh, about 3 30 in the morning on february 25th but she still has some work to do when, when she's up there i believe she's going to be launching about three cubesats while she's up there and some of these cubesats are going to be launched at different altitudes it's going to be really really uh uh still a busy uh busy mission for uh for the swan before she takes her uh her final uh, her final swan dive if you will into uh into earth's atmosphere absolutely and that's the one thing is that at the meantime while spacex is the only one that has a supply vehicle capable of down mass or bringing stuff back the cygnus vehicle they get so much extra science out of it when they detach it from the space station and even while it's burning up it's fantastic what they're able to do with that vehicle and get every last ounce of science out of it so while we're talking about some of the other commercial launch providers, we can't forget about two big names that uh, one which had a launch and one which has one coming up. Blue Origin successfully launching their 10th New Shepard vehicle out of West Texas, that happening back on January 23rd. The main difference between this and some of its other test flights is that this one actually carried some payloads on board, carrying eight NASA-sponsored research payloads, taking it to suborbital space, going up about 66 miles or 107 kilometers, and then the capsule landing back down under parachute with the launcher successfully doing a controlled landing back near the launch area. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, it looks like that Blue Origin said, at least during that particular broadcast, is they are still hanging on to the fact that maybe, just maybe, they may be ready for paying passengers by the end of the year, but uh, they're not holding themselves to that. They basically said they are taking a very slow, methodical approach. We're not going to go ahead and say, oh, yes, we're going to do this by the end of the year. They're saying, um, let's just make sure we get this right, because they are really, really taking a, a, a sort of conservative approach to the whole thing which i find kind of refreshing exactly plus it's just you know you don't hear from them very often but when they do they put on a heck of a show and again it was the the webcast that they did was phenomenal and most importantly the mission which had payloads on board appeared to work near flawlessly so can't go wrong with that not at all not at all and in other commercial news uh the government shutdown is over as of this recording in the u.s at least the first part of the government shutdown which has caused a bunch of delays behind the scenes for future NASA missions, and that included the SpaceX first commercial crew launch. That launch has been pushed back quite a few times now, but SpaceX now announcing the first flight of DM-1. That will be an unmanned test flight of their Crew Dragon capsule aboard a Falcon 9. is now scheduled to launch from Launch Complex 39A in Florida, on March 2nd, that is a Saturday. Getting pushed back a little bit, uh, moving it a lot closer to the launch date of their competitor in that contract, and that would be Boeing's Starliner. Since they've had the downtime, SpaceX has been continuing to modify Launch Complex 39A, uh, improving the structures there. Now that the rotating service structure from the shuttle era is gone, it's a slick black color now. They've got the fancy walkway for the uh, crew to arrive onto the vehicle. And they've been jazzing it up because they also were planning on a Falcon Heavy launch coming up in the next month or two, which that date is now up in the air based on the flight time of DM-1. But 39A is going to be quite busy this year, and uh, SpaceX is going to make full use of their uh, new upgrades for sure. Yeah, as of this moment, we are planning to try and be there for that DM-1 flight, and we hope to be able to bring some of that to you. This is Gene McCulka with Talking Space. Uh, we interrupt our podcast here with some news that was made after we completed the recording of this program, and we felt it was important enough that it should be really, really included in the body of this particular podcast. I was there yesterday 
And I was there with the team as these commands went out into the deep sky. And I learned uh, this morning uh, that we had not heard back. And our beloved opportunity remained silent. It is therefore um, that I'm standing here with a sense of deep appreciation and gratitude that I declare the Opportunity Mission as complete, and with it, the Mars Exploration Rover Mission as complete. With that announcement made by Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Directorate, Dr. Thomas Zerbuchen, the nearly 15-year mission of the Mars Exploration Rovers have come to an end after a spectacular expedition on the Red Planet. It took a massive planet-wide dust storm that formed on May 30th, 2018, that led to the blackout conditions in the area where, where the Opportunity rover was investigating. Mars Exploration Program Manager John Callis had this to say about what ended Opportunity's mission. So what happened? Back in June, we were afflicted by a historic global dust storm on Mars that just blackened the skies over the rover and starved the rover for energy, and the rover went silent. And we tried valiantly over these last eight months to try to recover the rover, to get some signal from it. Uh, we listened every single day with the Deep Space Network with our sensitive receivers, and we sent over a thousand recovery commands, trying to exercise every possibility of getting a signal from the rover. But with time, the skies are darkening, it's getting colder on Mars. Uh, we recently passed through the uh, historic dust cleaning season on Mars to see if that would help. Uh, but that brought us to today, or brought us to last night, and we set our final commands, and we heard nothing. And so it comes time to say goodbye. But we want to remember the 14 and a half years of phenomenal exploration. You know, this was a 90-day mission, and we were so excited by just having three months to, to explore the planet with just a kilometer of capability. But 14 and a half years later and 45 kilometers of odometry, we've done phenomenal things. We've greatly expanded our understanding of uh, the Red Planet. Both rovers made landfall on Mars in 2004 and were designed for a 90-day, 1,100-yard Martian surface exploration mission. The rover Spirit would have a lifespan of about six years and travel 4.8 miles from its landing site, sending back some 128,000 raw images. Opportunity, on the other hand, would far exceed its design life by 60 times, spending more than a decade on the, as a Martian field geologist, traveling some 28 miles from its original landing site, with the mission finally coming to an end, coincidentally, on an area on Mars called Perseverance Valley. So what contributed to the longevity of the rovers? John Callis had some thoughts on that. Why did these rovers last so long? Why did Opportunity last so long? Well, well, there are two main technical reasons. One is that we had expected that dust falling out of the air would accumulate on the solar rays and eventually choke off power after about 90 days. But what we didn't expect is that wind would come along periodically and blow the dust off the arrays. And this, on a seasonal cycle, actually became pretty reliable and allowed us to survive not just the first winter, but all the winters we experienced on Mars and to keep going and exploring. The other thing was that these rovers actually have the finest batteries in the solar system. You know, they have over 5,000 charge-discharge cycles on them. They uh, have, still have about 85 or had about 85% of their capacity. I mean, we'd all love if their cell phone batteries lasted this long, but that really was an enabling uh, capability that with the dust cleaning and the batteries allowed us to have that critical energy we needed to get through the coldest, darkest parts uh, of the winter on Mars and, and to keep exploring. But we had many challenges along the way. I mean, when we first landed on Mars, one of the things that happened is we have a heater on the robotic arm on the rover that got stuck on and so every night, that heater would come on and waste energy from the rover. If they, we left it alone like that, um, the, the mission wouldn't have lasted long beyond the, the 90 days. So we developed this technique called deep sleep, which is every night we would turn everything off of the rover, including all the survival heaters, and the rover would get cold. But it would stay just warm enough that in the morning when the sun would come up and we would power everything back up, it never got below its uh, allowable temperatures. You know, this is kind of like um, 
you have a, a, the light in your bedroom is stuck on and you can't sleep. So what you do is you go outside and you turn off the master breaker for your house. But that means your refrigerator starts to warm up. But, you know, by the morning time when you wake up and you turn the breaker back on, the ice cream hasn't melted too badly. And you do that every single night. Now imagine doing that for 5,000 nights. And that's what we had to do for this vehicle. But it also partially perhaps explains why we weren't able to recover the rover. Because with the loss of power, the clock on the rover gets scrambled, and it wouldn't know when to deep sleep. And so it probably wasn't sleeping at night when it needed to, and that heater was stuck on, draining away whatever energy the solar rays were accumulating uh, from the sun to charge those batteries. Um, so that might be part of this explanation, in addition to the fact that now it's much colder and, and darker on Mars. During the special event that was held at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, John Callis also shared some personal reflections on the rover and his thoughts on the loss of the mission. And, and this is hard for me because I was there at the beginning, and, and I remember um, during the early days of development when we were trying to finish up the uh, construction of the rovers in the clean room just a few feet away from here, that we were working three shifts. And the engineering team was working the first two shifts. And they had a one person who would uh, keep a skeleton shift for the rovers from 7 p, uh, excuse me, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I volunteered to take many of those shifts, typically on the weekend when it was hard to find someone. And, and it was very meaningful and very touching because it was just me with the two rovers. And the rovers were in the clean room like it was a neonatal care facility. <laughs> and they had all the life support equipment. And you would watch their vital signs and you would see their heart rates and you would see the voltages and temperatures and currents and they would be living. And you would see them wake and sleep. And so during those times when it was just me, I, you know, you develop a special bond and they, they become your children. And that theme, I think, is true for so many people here tonight, or today, that uh, they, they have that strong connection. So uh, even though it's a machine uh, and we're saying goodbye, it's still very hard and, and very poignant. In another development, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, NASA hosted an industry forum to discuss partnership opportunities with U.S. industry to develop reusable systems capable of landing both science packages and crew on the surface of the moon. The system will first carry unpiloted science packages to the lunar surface. NASA's Administrator Jim Bridenstine indicated that he wanted to take shots on goal, similar to the way the commercial cargo program started to develop, knowing that some of these attempts may not be entirely successful. One of the things that I think is important is, again, we want this reusability, we want the sustainability, but we also want to go fast. It's important that we get back to the moon as fast as possible. One of the first things that I did as NASA Administrator is we announced a, a new program, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, which is run out of the Science Mission Directorate, not the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. That was a new direction where we said, we're going to take shots on goal. How do we get stuff on the surface of the moon as soon as possible so we can make great determinations about where we need to be uh, when we start sending more robust missions? And we're going to take some of those capabilities that could even materialize, could, I'm not saying will, but could materialize even as early as 2019 to take things to the surface of the moon. But we're going to take a lot of those capabilities and apply them to what we're trying to do with human exploration and operations. And, by the way, what we're doing with human exploration and operations, um, Gateway itself uh, is an amazing tool for science discovery. Uh, and, of course, the moon is not just about the science of the moon and the science on the moon, but using the moon as a platform to do deep space science, astrophysics. This particular architecture that we've developed is important because it optimizes sustainability and speed, and that's our goal, sustainability and speed. It's open so we can have more partners, international partners, commercial partners, and of course right now what we're looking for in this broad agency uh, um, announcement um, within this, what we call the reference architecture, we're looking for um, ways to, to refuel some of the elements to land on the moon. We're looking for, you know, a, a transfer vehicle, and we're looking for 
lander capability. NASA's Associate Administrator for Human Spaceflight, Bill Gerstenmeyer, explained the timelines and the challenges that the proposed lander will face and where the proposed lunar gateway is at this point. Pretty exciting time for us uh, moving forward. We'll spend a little bit of time later today when we talk to industry about the, the broad agency announcement and the specifics of the, the three pieces of the lander architecture we're looking at first through a series of studies. And, and the idea is we'll get uh, proposals we've asked for by uh, the 25th of March. The idea is to uh, make selections by the May kind of time frame and actually have them on contract for this first six-month study period by July. And we're looking again, as Jim described, the descent capability, the transfer capability, and the refueling capability. And what we want is, in these studies, we want to see with this reference architecture that we've been studying for about a year, year and a half, are there, how do those pieces come together and how do you use those? What is the right reusable aspect of, of the lander, the descent capability? What is the right re reusability of the transfer vehicle to take you from the near rectilinear halo orbit down to the low lunar orbit. What is that right mix between those? And what kind of refueling system do you want to put in there? Is a refueling vehicle part of the transfer vehicle? We've got lots of things that we really want industry's input in. And then we're not totally closed. If there's some proposals that come in that are different, that want to reflect a totally different architecture, we'll still evaluate those. We'll take another look at those. They won't necessarily be part of this BAA study, but we'll take those off to the side. If we want to do this fast, as Jim talked about, we've got to kind of home in on a reference architecture, build a plan, see what pieces we can do with that, and then move forward. So again, I think if you look at the overall architecture, things are moving pretty quick. We've put, got the uh, power propulsion element, the first piece of gateway. Those proposals have been received. Our teams are evaluating those. We're currently in blackout. We'll make selections in a little bit uh, on that activity, and that will get us forward. That's a propulsion piece that, and power piece that we'll use for Gateway. We've also been doing studies through the, through the broad agency announcement process for the habitation elements. So there's a habitation element available at each center to actually look at to start seeing what the inside of the modules will look like. So this year you'll be able to actually go to the various centers and actually see those habitation modules. So there's real work moving forward towards the gateway pieces, and this broad um, agency announcement we're about ready to go do starts addressing some of the, the lander pieces and some of the transfer pieces and, and other things. One of the more promising aspects of this is that there seems to be a sense of urgency, and NASA is pushing industry to help get the agency back to the lunar surface and back quickly. We'll have more developments when the team reassembles for the next installment of Talking Space. We now return you to your scheduled episode. All right, uh, so busy launch roundup, so let's uh, not neglect some of the other busy space news that has been going on since then as well. And uh, you may remember... We've talked about Ultima Thule. In case you've forgotten, that was the farthest object past Pluto that a spacecraft has been able to image, and that was imaged by New Horizons, which was also the first one to successfully photograph Pluto up close. Now, we had first seen Ultima Thule. It seemed like these two large objects that had basically fused together into this one giant round snowman, and now they're calling it a snowman pancake? Is that right? Yes, indeed. It's kind of amazing, actually, when you look at it. It's kind of a lumpy pancake, like uh, when you didn't stir the batter enough. <laughs> but it um, or really two pancakes. Like, have you ever made a pancake like that, where it's like two pancakes that fuse together? It really, truly looks like that. Oh, absolutely. When you're trying to mix the batter and some, you're trying to get these two perfect circles and they start mixing with yeah, each they other like and they get this lump in the middle that's burnt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's really what it looks like. Too many like. experiences with it, but it, that is the perfect <laughs> analogy. And it's kind of got either big bubbles or big lumps of batter going on because there's like sort of these lumps on it. Um, but yeah, it's not this round thing. And what's truly amazing about this is nobody predicted ever finding something like this. This is completely foreign. It's like, once again... Just like finding the heart on Pluto. Um, <laughs> New Horizons is sending us something that's making us actually go, huh? <laughs> like, to the point where this is going to be something studied for 
probably generations to come because it changes everything we've thought about the formation of planetary bodies. We, we have no like model that includes something becoming this. That's what New Horizons specialty is, just completely changing their understanding of planetary bodies. Well, actually, as the woman who wrote, you know, Bake Sale for NASA, I have to say, I have a line in there that's, you know, um, uh, to answer the questions that in the past we didn't even know to ask. Like, and to me, that line is the best way I could ever sum up NASA. Because New Horizons is just one of the most mind-boggling examples of it. But so many of these missions, ter- like, return stuff that really, it's just like, we didn't, we had no clue. We had no, no clue anything like this existed. <laughs> and I, it's been like that a lot for the past 10 years in particular, because there's such a number of missions, right? It's absolutely mind-bending. And, but this is like, <laughs> literally alien. Not saying it's aliens, but <laughs> alien. <laughs> because, yeah. again, it's me and it's terrible jokes. No, but, but you also kind of have to say that because people, <laughs> you know, they hear alien and... <laughs> yeah, it's you, you, you do. But it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I, I haven't even seen real thoughts on how this could happen because people are scratching their heads so much. And... The more that they've clarified the pictures of it, the more, you know, curious it is. I don't know if you folks have seen this or not, but there is a really, really cool departure video that was created by a composite of several images that uh, was taken by the uh, the long range reconnaissance imager or lorry camera as um, as New Horizons was departing uh, Ultima Thule. And this was from about 5,000, if I'm reading this correctly from the uh, write-up on it here, it was from from about 5,494 miles away. And it, I mean, it gives you goosebumps if you see this thing. So, I mean, this really, when I saw that, it, it it's a jaw-dropper. And it, it just goes to show, Cassie, what you were saying this thing is really a something really, really, truly out of this world, quote, close quote. But um, it it just really gives you that that otherworldly feel to this and to to this object. It really gets you excited about what you're seeing. And again, this is why we go out there to learn more about objects objects like this because not only is this going to go ahead and tell us a little bit more about an object that's something like four billion miles away from us that has never been touched before it will also tell us a little bit more of how our own world was formed and created and what material helped put that together because this what they're theorizing is uh, the, the Kuiper Belt is just loaded with debris that was never really used um, to form terrestrial planets with. And, and we hope that maybe by analyzing what's out there, we'll learn more about how our world was formed. That, and that's exactly why when people are like, why are we spending all this money on that kind of exploration? Like that's, the, that's actually, in some ways you could say that's the selfish answer. Because the more we understand about everything else in our solar system, the more we understand about Earth. And the more we understand about Earth, the more we have a chance of, you know, keeping our home as long as possible and things like that. Because we understand more about our own planet. And understanding its birth is something that can help us understand how to, you know, take care of it and things like that. And ultimately, in the long run, that's super important, just as important as learning how to get off of this planet. So Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. really, it's extraordinary. And actually, I'd like to point out um, specifically a quote from a BBC article on this. Um, they ended the article with, quote, Wherever we've explored in the solar system, we've found the unexpected. As we wait for our close-up look at Ultima Thule, it's hard to not, not to get excited about what happens next. So obviously that was from right before we got <laughs> the pictures back, but I just thought that really captured why we explore. Exactly. I mean, who would have thought that we would have found two, not just one object, but two that had basically fused together into one. And, you know, the theory of, you know, everything coalescing into the planets that we know of today and the, you know, objects that are out there. 
it's just amazing. And the fact that this thing was flying by it at such high speeds and we're able to get such amazing data out of it is unreal. It truly is. And this was basically like a bonus mission. <laughs> so to think that this was like ordering an Amazon add-on <laughs> in like space exploration terms. This is like something we weren't sure we'd ever get or wasn't really, it's like a piece of serendipity, which in a universe full of chaos, serendipity is one of the best parts of being part of it, it truly. I think you've got a new song, Eric. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to just add uh, add one other thing, too, New Horizons uh, ain't over yet. Uh, after this flyby is over and the data is collected, there's they're going to be analyzing stuff. You know, Every day is going to be uh, like Christmas for the next uh what, 20 months, I believe, because it's going to take that long to empty out the recorder. But while they're doing that, they're going to be doing further analysis on the track of uh, New Horizons to see if there's any other opportunities there. Because, again, the spacecraft is healthy at this point, and it's out there. So the idea is like, huh, what else can we do with this thing out there? So uh, this just may be the first of, uh, of several objects that perhaps uh, New Horizons can explore to us and get and basically maybe even get some comparative stuff going on uh, with the objects that are out there. Okay, this is what uh, Ultima Thule looks like, but is there, what about the others out there? Is, do, do they look similar? And, and if so, are other objects out there completely different? We don't know yet, so well, yeah, we stay have tuned. No idea, and the more that we find these pieces that are so different, the more we can get an idea of how things really happened, <laughs> you know? It's absolutely, it, it's astounding. And it's also a really great example of, we love to talk about the value of NASA missions <laughs> because obviously they cost a lot of money. And it, this is one of those things where, as far as the spacecraft, we've already spent the money. This is all, like we're in bonus time here on that. The all the money that's still going into New Horizons and that will go into it in the future is being spent on people to, you know, work the data and create these pictures and do all this analysis. And it's people through lots of institutions. And so I just want to point that out because when you're in bonus time on a mission like this, it's kind of amazing how it's such a perfect example of the value that we get for these missions. Exactly, and we will continue to follow New Horizons as it continues its journey out into deep space and as they continue to work on this data back down here on Earth as well. Alright, so continuing on, we're going to stay out in the solar system, but we're going to move a little bit closer to home this time, and uh, we're going to work our way towards Mars. And we've got two Mars-related stories. The first one comes to us out of Europe. Now, the European Space Agency is currently working on their newest Mars mission, which didn't really have a name until now, but now we have a name for the vehicle. So we've got Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, and hopefully soon to join them. Rosalind Franklin. Yeah, so the significance of of that name is uh, uh, Rosalind Franklin was a British chemist, and I believe the uh, the ExoMars rover is a British construct, or at least part of it, or a good portion of it. It was was constructed in uh, in Great Britain. So this is kind of a salute to the folks that uh, that did put uh, the ExoMars rover together, but uh, she was a, uh, a British chemist, and a, um, uh, but she also contributed really to the, uh, to the analysis of the double helix or, the, or, the, or DNA that basically makes up all of us. So uh, given the fact that uh, the ESA ExoMars mission really is I believe a, a biological mission. Uh, if the panel can go ahead and check me on that, but it is basically a a search for life kind of mission. This is a great salute to a uh, to somebody that contributed to uh, the understanding of life back here uh, on Earth, 
And uh, it's kind of fitting, too, that uh, a British citizen was honored in, in this way. And also, famously, in 1962, everybody who used her work uh, to um, find the structure of DNA were awarded the Nobel Prize. And they don't give it posthumously. She had already died. And so <sighs> I'm really glad she's finally getting like an award that while different is legendary. It's something that's going to keep her name alive forever in a whole different way. And there's something really beautiful about that. I don't think there could be a more fitting tribute to a scientist than doing science in their name. Like that's, it's beautiful. And we're talking about a woman who went to Cambridge in 1938. Women were not becoming scientists at Cambridge University in 1938. She was a absolute pioneer. So I think spacecraft is a particularly amazing way to honor, no matter what science you were in, it's a particularly amazing way to honor people of science to explore in their name. Absolutely. And again, a huge shout out to the team over at ESA for naming this spacecraft after such an amazing person. And her legacy will now continue to live on forever as uh, there's spacecraft gets ready to go to Mars next year. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on the ExoMars mission and the Rosalind Franklin. And uh, again, just great job to ESA naming that one. It's, it's nice to see a little bit of a change there and to honor someone like that. So while we're sticking with Mars, uh, you may remember probably one of our first seasons. It was very early on uh, in Talking Space's history as we celebrate our 10th year on the air now. Um, that we had first mentioned a project called Mars One involving a uh, one-way trip to Mars. And uh, I believe this may have been even one of our first ever episodes before we were called Talking Space. We discussed it. And um, we've had our trepidations over the years. We've discussed it many times. And uh, I believe we have an update from them, right? Sawyer, so, yeah, it's kind of funny that you've mentioned that because uh, it was actually on our very first program that we discussed a one-way trip to Mars. And the entire panel here thought it was probably not the greatest idea in the world. Uh, some some individuals, you know, were, were kind of leaning toward pro, but, but the whole idea of going to Mars is to go ahead, go out there, bring the secrets of Mars back to the Earth and come back to talk about the adventure with your fellow humans, not to stay out there and, and do some sort of homesteading work out there, to just come also come back and talk about the adventure and commiserate with your fellow humans. I mean, this is why this is why we, we, we loved the Apollo astronauts and there's sadly only, you know, as 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 we'll we'll discuss a little later, there aren't many of the, those folks left. But this was this was a whole different bag. It it apparently just came over just as we were going to air, believe it or not, about maybe it's about what, uh ten oh six as we record this on Sunday, February tenth. About two hours ago, uh something was posted out there on, on Reddit basically saying that the Mars One organization has gone bankrupt. And as of, um, I'll just read this, by by decision of January 15th, 2019, uh, the um, basically the company has declared itself bankrupt. As of January 15th, 2019, at 3.37 p.m. local time, thus dissolving it. So uh, the... Um, the sideshow that was that was basically Mars One has ended. Um, a lot of people got thrown into the soup, and and it, there was a lot of sound and fury about it. Uh, but in in the end, it signified absolutely nothing. The uh, if I recall exactly, on this program, we even d debated the the worthiness of, of the program. We went into uh, in-depth uh, conversations about the series that a, uh, a freelance writer by the name of uh, ML Keep had written on Medium about, uh, about Mars One and about some of the shady practices that were going on. But uh, also the, uh, there was an MIT study, if I recall, uh, that was 
set just a few years ago that basically said that if Mars One followed the flight plan and followed the uh, the setup of their um, their base essentially on on the Martian surface the way it was dictated, uh, they would basically kill every single one of the uh, 100 individuals that they they put on the surface of, of Mars within 68 days of their arrival. Uh, and it would not be a pretty, pretty death by any stretch of the imagination. The whole thing in my eyes was just a sideshow and it was doomed, but it duped a lot of people and a lot of people of note. Uh, I believe they had this crew selection as well that basically went absolutely nowhere it was kind of a bogus way they they well, they no it didn't selected their it people didn't, i mean it did, okay i we can talk about the bogus way they selected people but they did actually they narrowed it down to 100 people and then they were supposed to mar- narrow it down again to 40. did they ever get to 40? Right. and i just want to yeah and i just also want to mention that um you know despite this bankruptcy filing that that people have been bringing attention to their Twitter account was still, re- you know, still tweeting recently. I think their last tweet was like February 5th. Um, so um, just, just because they're filing bankruptcy doesn't mean that the entity isn't still operating in some form or some of their news might not come out. I mean, could be possible that the scam continues. I hope not. It it sounded like though from the uh, from the the legal paper here that they were they were being dissolved. So if somebody was actually running their no, absolutely. But just keep in mind that you know legally you can dissolve one corporation and then immediately form another one. So, yeah, okay. You know because this, this is very this is very yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean you got because they're they've been actively tweeting since then, and so. It's, you know, it's just something maybe we should keep our eye on because. Yeah. So uh, I think it might be, you know, either... a little too early to sound the death bells, whatever, um, set up the wake, drink to their demise. Um, but, you know, we should just, it is concerning. I mean, everything about this entire Mars One has been concerning to any anyone who's been paying attention um, because it's just, you know, not only is as you said, Gene, a one-way trip to Mars, not a great idea. Um, a one-way trip to Mars plus a scam to get money from people and then give people false hopes and expectations, also not a great Everything idea. Everything about that's not a great idea. And honestly, I could get behind a one-way trip to Mars if it was planned for you to live out a full long life and actually have like kids and colonize it. I, think I couldn't deal with it. For <laughs> that should be their tagline, Cassie. Days, Mars you know? one. <laughs> Not a great not idea. A, yeah. <laughs> like that's really, truly a whole different thing. You know, it's uh, people willing to just completely sacrifice any chance at a life for it is not a good idea. People who actually yeah, want to, yeah. you know, be like early American colonists or something and, you know, maybe live their life there is would be a completely different thing to me. Yeah, but no one, I mean, the technology at this point doesn't really exist for there to be full and happy lives on Mars. So until, you know, that's actually, it's the same reason that, you know, right now SpaceX is, you know, Mars colonization isn't, you know, it's just, it's not feasible. It's it's hard to That doesn't mean that this isn't going to be feasible. So, yeah, no, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be feasible one day. And certainly when it is, when people can go and live full and happy lives, whether it be on Mars or on, like, you know, spaceships boldly going where no one else has ever gone before, like, all for it. But until then, not a great idea. There has to be a plan for life to continue. (laughs) Heck, we have to get there first. I mean, we've got... We've got great plans to get to Mars. It's just all of them involve okay. at minimum at least five more years of time. Exactly. is Elon's current plan, if I recall. And we know how Elon time works. <laughs> right, so we're talking probably 10 years until someone gets to Mars. And how can you talk about colonizing a planet that we've never even stepped Absolutely, foot on? Absolutely, entirely. We need, if we're if we are going to colonize Mars, we need to do it the smart way. And we've only put humans on one other planetary body so far like yeah (laughs) we are so far from colonizing mars it's just it's still sci-fi at this point we're working towards it but it's still sci-fi at this point 
Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, it's still fun to see, you know, to prepare for it now, and it's good to get a start on it. So, for example, the projects where, you know, they simulate what it's like being on Mars yes. here on Earth, putting people within a closed space for a year or two, the year in space with the, uh, you know, the study between Mark and Scott Kelly yeah. and things like that. absolutely. I, it's great that we're doing this stuff to get ready for it and to anticipate it and hoping that it comes sooner than later. But that's the difference is... These are testing ideas of feasibility, not, oh, here's our crew, here's the people we're going to send, here's how we're going to do it, and we're ready to do it. Not it's, even close. We know we've got steps to take to get there, and SpaceX and NASA, that, that's what they're doing, is they're taking the steps. And I feel like if Mars One was doing that, of, hey, let's do some Mars training things, let's plan on, you know, doing some lunar colonization tests first, things like that. I feel like it would be a totally different story exactly. than what we're talking about now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love planning. Like, plan something to my heart's content um, and do things. Exactly what you're saying. Experimentation, testing, you know, realistic steps and milestones. But that's not, you know, Mars One has never had realistic steps and milestones. Not to mention an actual financial plan that's not just about people giving them money. Not only that, the whole sh thing was the way they were going to go ahead and try to get money for this thing that it was going to be sort of a reality mm -hmm. show, if you if you will, going out to uh, to Mars and everybody was going to do a pay-per-view thing to watch these poor slobs going to... Uh, God, going I just had a horrible, Mars. like, The Bachelor... Mars one crossover like. I also fantasy. do want to say I don't. We shouldn't. It, some of the people who got who are in the Mars one hundred or whatever, they're really awesome. So we shouldn't make fun of the people involved in it. They're just they're dreamers, you know. And it uh, they're it's really it's so easy to get caught up in things that you maybe shouldn't. And also a lot of them walked away and are the reasons that we know exactly how bad it was. They're whistleblowers. So. I'm just, I, I want to give a little respect to the people who applied for it, because why not take a shot? Most people are never going to get any shot to go to space, and some people will do anything, including be on a reality show that no, makes Survivor look kind in order to do it. No, yeah, absolutely. I don't think we should, you know, yeah, I think you couldn't have said it any better, Cassie. We shouldn't. This is we're not disparaging the people who wanted to take any opportunity that they could to go to Mars, but we see them as separately. Yeah, I agreed. But I, I'm just saying that these poor, poor folks were, were essentially victims of, of, of a bamboozle. And a it wasn't just the, the people that were, quote, selected, close quote, to go on this mission. A lot of other very, very loud names in the uh, the space advocacy area were also kind of, well, shall we say, kind of sucked in by this thing. Yeah, and again, it it's not that we're saying that they're bad people. Just to reiterate, there were some very good people that had very good ideas working on the project. But like you said, a lot of those good people realized that there was a problem within the organization and left. While there are some bad seeds, it doesn't mean that everyone there is bad and that the ideas were terrible. It's just a lot of poor execution on what could have been some good ideas. And honestly, I think Gene used the perfect word. I think a lot of the people involved in this ended up being victims of it because it's, it is, it is. I feel real. I genuinely feel bad for a lot of people, like engineers who were working for them, and <laughs> all these people who got kind of caught up, and or just needed a job. <laughs> I mean, at one point they had a contract with Lockheed Martin, yeah, for to uh, to land two spacecraft on the surface of Mars. These two spacecraft were going to be, uh, I believe, redresses of the Mars Insight. Uh, lander and the whole purpose of of these two landers were to go ahead and check out the possible landing site for uh for for uh, their use and uh, that's just an example of of the folks that just got kind of caught up into this whole thing again we're not calling people out by any stretch of the imagination it's just uh, everybody just got to 
sucked into the idea of this happening. It's kind of the same thing with, if if you recall, the, the Dennis Tito plan to go ahead and send a, a couple around Mars the same way that we sent uh, Apollo 8 around the moon uh, back in December of uh, 1968. They wanted to go ahead and take the very first SLS, if you will, with two volunteers on board, uh, a married couple and shoot them around uh, Mars. In fact, they were actually collecting volunteers' names to go ahead and do this. That would that too was a very very ill advised plan. Was that thing going to see the light of day? Absolutely not. You think NASA was going to go ahead and freely give Dennis Tito their very first SLS for nothing? No, of course not. It was sort of the same thing with, with this particular uh, mission as well. And again, we're not we're not bashing the people that that were called up or or you know asked to volunteer or anything like that. But we are bashing the idea and how Sawyer, how you pointed out, it was just really, really badly executed, badly thought out, and unfortunately, folks got you know, really, really bamboozled by this whole affair. My thought, good riddance to bad rubbish. Exactly. And of course, we're always open to your thoughts. You know, you can always email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com or send us your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. We are at TalkingSpace on both of those. All right. So before we wrap up tonight, uh, this is always my favorite part of the show. Mark Ratterman somehow always has some of the best hidden stories and remembrances and things that you would not think about and these are some of my favorite times and this is especially poignant as we reach the 50th anniversary this year of Apollo 11 and uh, Mark has a special tribute I believe to a member of the Apollo program who we recently lost. And that's correct. This is something I've literally stumbled across. I picked up a little local uh, newspaper. It uh, is published every two weeks so you can tell it is really local and a really um, rural part of North Florida, but it has a quarter of the page on the front page about a local uh, veteran, an Apollo 13 engineer. His name was Arthur Martin. He passed away in the fall of 2018, and it's not the individual and the specifics of the individual as much that I want to leave with you, but just a reminder that there are people all around us that have done Uh, interesting and incredible things in their lives and take a moment if you get a hint that that you might have somebody to talk to and learn about take that moment to talk to him this gentleman enlisted in the Navy in World War II at the age of 16 which he was too young to enlist in the Navy in the Navy so uh, the recruiter gave him the form he took it to his mother he hid her glasses so that she couldn't see what she was signing. And she signed his paper authorizing him to go in the Navy a year before he was actually eligible. That's quite a, uh, quite a coup. But he went on to an interesting career. He, his name is inscribed on the Apollo Monument on the Spacewalk Hall of Fame down on the Space Coast. He's got a, uh, a piece of memorabilia from the crew of Apollo 13, It was a piece of the lunar module that brought those men safely back to Earth, and they presented him with the signed paper and a piece of the lunar module. And again, it's not the individual. It's just I could go on with uh, this pretty long article that talks about his interesting career, people that he worked around, the work that he did with Apollo, the things he did in the U.S. Navy. And uh, take a moment if you meet an old timer to talk to him. And I say that with the greatest respect when I say old timer, talk to him, find out what's going on, what happened in their lives. And certainly I think thank him for it. And sorry, this is so belated from that point in time, but I think we've still got more than a few of our Apollo men and women uh, with us from those days. And let's give them a thank you when we do get the chance to meet them. Thanks, Mark. And um, yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, just a case in point, uh, Buzz Aldrin was at the uh, State of the Union uh, this past uh, Monday to represent everyone that had meaningfully touched Apollo in some way, shape or form. Because again, 
this is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 uh, launch and, and subsequent landing on the moon. Um, and indeed, especially, uh, I, I had to laugh a little bit because uh, that is such a, a common thread whenever you hear about somebody uh, from that particular generation uh, at 16 going ahead and, and tricking their 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 parents in some way shape or form to uh to sign their name on the on the enlistment paper so they could go into the navy or the army or whatever uh branch of the armed for forces that uh that these folks were uh, were going into it, it's I, I i chuckled a little bit at, at that when i heard it because it's such a common thread the, the the idea of service of giving back uh and it's something i don't know i think in some cases, we lose that, and th that I think should be brought back and should be uh, given an example to. But uh, um, we've talked to folks uh, here on on the program, uh, and we hope to find more as as we go into this uh, this fiftieth year of, of Apollo to talk to folks to that just made a contribution in in some way, shape, or form to the success of Apollo. Uh, so we, if, if you're out there, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, give us a shout and, and uh, tell us what, uh, what you did, and we might want to go ahead and, and feature, feature you on the program. So if you're listening or if you know somebody that, that, uh, that may have touched Apollo in a meaningful way and you want to give them a moment of the sun, we'd be more than happy to do that. Absolutely. I mean, we already have some plans lined up to try and get some great guests for you for this Apollo anniversary, but it's amazing hearing the stories of the people that, you know, the little people of, you see all those names if you've been down to the Space Coast and you go down that walk and you don't think much of them. And to hear their stories and the little fun details behind it and yet the amazing important work that they do, such as helping to bring back the crew of Apollo 13, it's fantastic and to think that this is based out of small town florida in north florida in a small little community there and, and that you can only imagine if that's what you're getting here with all the other small town communities across the country where people decided i want to go serve my country and somehow ended up with their way helping in the space program there's got to be dozens of other stories out there and it's so great to get to capture some of them hopefully while we still have them with us so we can share their amazing story and uh Yes, we would love to hear from anyone out there who worked in the Apollo program in any way, shape, or form as we uh, celebrate 50 years since the first moon landing. And I mean, I think that is the absolute perfect way to bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone that joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And I have uh, one more little obit I want to go ahead and, and send along. Uh, we lost a, a dear friend of mine um, this past week, uh, Kate Doolin. Uh, she was the author of uh, the book Fallen Astronauts, and uh, she also was the sysop uh, uh, for a, uh, a Facebook page of the same uh, same name. And uh, she was also undertaking another another book project um, on uh, the life of uh, Edward White. So I don't know what's going to happen to that uh, that particular project, but uh, uh, we lost uh, a real good space historian and not just a space historian uh kate knew more about uh u.s history and she was uh an australian but she knew more about u.s military history than anybody i knew so um she respected this country probably more than some people and understood it more than some people i know and that were born here kate um we lost you at 56 years old way too soon and I wish you uh, good tailwinds uh, as you uh, you reach for the stars. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, it's also uh, to hear her speak at Space Fest about it and to get to talk with her about it and getting to interview the families of all these astronauts. It's amazing. If you have not read the book, Fallen Astronauts, Heroes Who Died Reaching for the Moon, it's worth the read. Well worth the read. And we're definitely going to miss her. Thank you as well for joining us. Wow, we got a bunch of people here tonight. Let's see who we go next. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Kat Robinson. It's always a pleasure to be here. Glad to hear the gang back together again. Absolutely. Thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini. 
Thank you so much. And I echo exactly what Kat said. It's so cool to have the gang all back. And especially, I love that we actually got to touch on some stories we've been tracking for years as we really ramp up for the new season. So lots more to come. Exactly. I mean, I was looking, we've covered basically Mars One, season five, season seven. It's only appropriate that we hit it in our 10th year in season 11. It's it goes way back. Oh, for but... sure. Because I know I've talked about it a lot on the show, and I haven't always been on. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's also very true. I'm glad to have you back, though, as well. Thank you. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And it's good to be here once again and to have been part of the show. I'll encourage everyone to look up a first robotics competition event in your area. They'll start popping up in late February through April. There's teams around the world, as in hundreds and hundreds and thousands, and uh, it's a sport of the mind, and it's a great deal of fun. Uh, take it from me, but First Robotics Competition, firstinspires.org. Check it out. Absolutely, and uh, Mark, we know your voice will be uh, slightly absent from the show for a little bit while you continue working on that amazing project, and uh, again, First Robotics is another fantastic project. We've covered some of their events in the past, and astronauts get involved with it too, and some of the smartest, most intelligent kids you'll ever meet. So a fantastic program, fantastic group. Definitely check that out. And we'd like to thank you, of course, as well for joining us. And uh, we hope you'll join us next time. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.